0: I feel like women are the ones who get blamed. They get blamed and shamed for their fertility, like being too fertile, being not fertile enough, making choices that are judged. You know, women are just judged for reproduction in ways that men aren't. And I feel like there is still the stigma about egg freezing, like, oh, she went off to freeze her eggs instead of, you know, finding a partner. And I really want to remove the judgment.
1: When you're born with a body that has a uterus, You're faced with the potential promise and peril of getting pregnant. It's a tension we carry with us the second we start menstruating. In those early years, it's about how to avoid pregnancy at all costs. Then later, for some of us, we begin to ask ourselves a series of questions. Do I want to get pregnant? Am I ready? Am I able to now that I want to? They're all tough decisions there are a ton of financial, social, and emotional things to consider. Plus, hanging over everything is the big old biological clock. In today's episode, we're talking about reproduction in the age of egg freezing and how much we don't know about our own fertility. I'm your host, Kimberly Drew. I'm an author, curator, and all-around cultural enthusiast. And from Flamingo, this is Unruly, where we take the quiet ways women's bodies are commodified, defined, regulated, and we name them out loud. We want to educate and support each other because your body is your business. This is episode four, to freeze or not to freeze high-tech fertility. Today, I'm joined by Marsha Inhorn, an anthropologist and professor at Yale whose book, Motherhood on Ice, The Mating Gap, and Why Women Freeze Their Eggs, explores the misconceptions, struggles, and triumphs of women delaying motherhood. So, welcome to Unruly.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: We are truly so honored. So let's get right into it. What is the history of egg freezing. When was it invented? What were the intentions? Let's just start with a briefer for anybody who might not be familiar.
0: Yeah. Interestingly, since the beginning of in vitro fertilization back in 1978, there was a lot of interest in freezing the eggs and sperm and embryos. And sperm freezing was easily achieved actually since about the 1950s or 1960s. Embryo freezing has been possible since the 1980s, almost since the beginning of IVF, but it was really difficult to freeze the human egg. And why is that? The human egg is the largest cell in the body (laughs) and it is watery. And in the sort of old, slow process of freezing, it didn't Freeze well, it would sort of crystallize, there was chromosomal damage. So it was difficult to achieve. And then a new form of fast freezing called vitrification came about in the aughts, basically, since the new millennium. And it worked. It worked to finally freeze eggs with this very fast flash freezing method. And sort of the original intention, I guess, clinically was for young women facing dire medical issues, especially young women with cancer who were going to have to go through chemotherapy and radiation and so on, which has the potential to really make a person sterile. I mean, it can damage a a young person's fertility. And so... The first kind of application was really for what's now called medical egg freezing, but it was realized that there was a wider potential application for healthy women who didn't need to do this medically, but were concerned about their own fertility and perhaps were getting into their 30s and worried about what we would call age-related fertility decline. So by the year 2012, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine lifted the experimental label and really allowed it to be used for both medical and what's now called non-medical or elective egg freezing. So we're 10 years on, you know, it's been sort of a decade of egg freezing for, you know, otherwise healthy women. And it's been a burgeoning, I mean, really every year more and more people are going to have this procedure, this new technology undertaken, not only in the United States, but really increasingly around the world.
1: You mentioned the term medical freezing, and there was this important transition that happened. And, of course, there comes all of these other classifications of how people accessed it. But I wonder if you could talk about this turning point with a bit more depth. How and when did this reach the larger market? What were some of the things that happened as this dispersal happened?
0: Right. So it was October 19, 2012. the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is basically the professional society for clinicians in the world of IVF, lifted the experimental label saying that it is okay for egg freezing now to be practiced in IVF clinics around the country at this point in time. In the first year that it was clinically available in 2013, there were already 5,000 egg freezing cycles undertaken in the United States. So that was sort of the first year. And then every year since then, the numbers have just gone up and up and up, you know. So now there are thousands of American women who've frozen their eggs. I did a major study with the U.S. National Science Foundation and I recruited women mostly from the East Coast and the West Coast, just, you know, asked for volunteers for the study, people who wanted to talk with me. But about a quarter of the women that I interviewed we're in other parts of America, you know, sort of doing it wherever there are IVF clinics that are offering it. How common
1: are IVF clinics on a scale of one to accessible? Where would you rate it in terms of, at least in the U.S.?
0: Yeah, there are more than 400 IVF clinics in the United States, but All of these assisted reproductive technologies are not very accessible, to be quite frank. They're expensive technologies. And, you know, in the United States, we don't have universal health care. So you have access to health care if you have a good insurance policy. And in vitro fertilization and all of the other technologies, including egg freezing, are mostly not covered by health insurance. I mean, it depends if you work for like a Fortune 500 company or a tech company, you know, you may have assisted reproductive technology coverage, but because most people don't, you know, it's elective and you have to pay for it. And I'm going to say, egg freezing is very expensive. I was going to say, let's let's, let's throw just out some talk figures. About <laughs> it, how, how penny
1: right? are we going? How expensive is this process?
0: It is minimally about ten thousand U.S. dollars for one cycle of egg freezing. And egg freezing is really half of an IVF cycle. You're doing the first half of an IVF cycle when you freeze your eggs. You you basically have to pay for the procedure itself. And then added to that is the hormonal medication. You have to basically inject, self-inject usually, hormonal medications to stimulate the production of, of eggs in your ovaries. And that can be an additional, you know, Thousands of dollars. So some women spend more like $15,000 on a round of egg freezing or even more. And ideally, women are encouraged to freeze about 20 eggs. And for many women, that's difficult because of age related ovarian issues. And so women sometimes undertake two cycles or three cycles. So we're talking a lot of money. You know, when I say it's $15,000 for a cycle of egg freezing, we're just talking about going through the procedure that I just described. But then the eggs are stored and you have to pay an annual storage fee, which could vary from $500 to $1,500. Let's say it's $1,000. You've stored your eggs for eight years. That's an additional $8,000 between the ages of 32 and 40. And then when you go back to use your eggs, on average, it's about $6,000 to do the next part, which is to have them rewarmed, have them fertilized. If you have to purchase donor sperm, that's an additional cost. So in the long durée of the whole process, we're talking thousands of dollars. Okay, so what
1: you're saying is that not only is this an incredibly complicated process, but it's one that does a number both on your body and your bank account.
0: When I asked women do you have any recommendations about egg freezing the number one recommendation is you know something needs to be done about the cost of this or there needs to be health insurance coverage for this as there often is for ivf if you're married mm-hmm, which was mm-hmm. another issue women single women felt that there was a certain level of discrimination that you know they worked for a company that covered infertility diagnosis and treatment for married employees but as a single woman employee there was no coverage for the egg freezing. And actually also, they said it's not only just single women, it's lesbian single women or lesbian partnered women who can't say that they've had one year of unprotected intercourse, you know, trying to conceive with a man. Right. Which,
1: could you talk about that specific year? Because I I read about this in the book, but people might not be familiar.
0: Right. So to have an infertility diagnosis, according to the criterion from the World Health Organization, you have to demonstrate at least one year of unprotected sexual intercourse to show that you're trying to have a child, you're trying to conceive, and it's not working. And that's sort of how infertility is defined, right? That you've tried for at least a year, and nothing's happening you haven't been able to conceive and therefore you then have an infertility diagnosis that then allows you to you know go forward with whatever the technology the most common one being in vitro fertilization so i interviewed some women in tech who were working for the sort of silicon valley based tech firms who realized this that they're married Friends in the company were getting the benefits of IVF for their infertility diagnoses. But these were single women who were very concerned in their mid 30s about their own declining fertility. And so egg freezing was there this is sort of before the companies were paying for it. And they went to their, you know, human resources people and said, you know, I am worried about age-related fertility decline. I don't want to be infertile. I want to prevent my own future infertility by freezing my eggs. Can I get it covered? And they were shocked to learn that, no, you know, you're single. They were asked questions like, well, are you having sex, unprotected sex with your partner? And it felt very bad, (laughs) right? Like Mm -hmm, this isn't mm -hmm. really fair just because I'm not married. I don't get the same benefits. So I learned a lot about, in a sense, women felt there were these injustices and, you know, something needs to be done about the cost or at least to have some at least partial insurance coverage for this procedure, because it it is about sort of protecting or trying to protect one's fertility and one's reproduction.
1: And one's autonomy, right? Like you are not able to make these decisions if these restrictions exist, and especially under these very clear double standards.
0: Yes, exactly. And there were some really powerful feminist voices, women that I talked to in my study, who were saying, you know, this is about reproductive choice, this is about reproductive justice, this is about reproductive rights, this is about reproductive autonomy, all the things that women in this country should have. But we see often these these things being eclipsed in all sorts of ways. And I guess we could say that this is one of them. And some clinics, uh, you know, realizing that not everyone can pay a lump sum of $15,000 cash, have different schemes to help put people on payment plans or to give discounts. Some clinics do give income-based discounts to women. So there are certain ways that clinics are trying to help in some cases. But, you know, this is a real inequity that really prevents a lot of women who might want to use this technology from ever attempting to access it. And that's really unjust and unfair. I mean, because these questions always come as part
1: of a larger ecosystem, they're not in a container. They're all a part of the ways in which women feel judged, feel limited in their options and um, in many ways how our bodies are viewed both socially and medically, right?
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Can I just say like, I I feel like women are the ones who get blamed. They get blamed and shamed for their fertility, like being too fertile, being not fertile enough, making choices that are judged. You know, women are just judged for reproduction in ways that men aren't. And I I feel like there is still the stigma about egg freezing, like, oh, she went off to freeze her eggs instead of, you know, finding a partner. And Like, I really want to remove the judgment and say, you know, this is a reproductive justice issue. The right to have children is a reproductive justice issue. It's one of the UN human rights, the ability to found a family. And that's what women hope to do by using this technology. I wonder
1: in your research or in your opinion There is this association between egg freezing and time, and and this idea of maybe buying time. Did you find that people in your study, or or are you finding in general, that that buying, quote-unquote, more time is helpful?
0: Yeah, no, it's an excellent question, and I think it is about time. Basically, just to be really clear, when you freeze your eggs at, say, age 32— those are your biological 32-year-old eggs. They get literally suspended in time at the age that you froze them. And let's say that you then get stuck in what I call reproductive waithood. <laughs> You're waiting to find a partner who maybe isn't emerging in the way that you'd hoped. And so let's say you become age 40, it's you know eight years on, you haven't found your partner. And let's just say maybe you decided you wanted to use your eggs and become a so-called single mother by choice or by circumstance, right? So you can then go back and get those eggs. They will be rewarmed in the IVF lab and using sperm, either a partner sperm or donor sperm, the embryos are created and you are using your 32-year-old eggs. And so it is actually a way to preserve fertility in time and then to extend it. Let's say by the time you reach 40, your own eggs in your body may no longer be viable for conception. But using your 32-year-old eggs, you may end up creating very excellent, high-quality embryos. So it is about time. I asked women at the end in you know my conversations with them, ultimately, after you've done this, how do you feel about having done the egg freezing? And it was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, more than 90% of women had at least one positive thing to say about their egg freezing experience. And for a lot of women, it was really actually kind of wildly empowering. In fact, the word power, empowering, empowered came up just over and over without any kind of prompting. Women feeling like, you know, this is the one thing I could do for myself. It's the one thing I could take charge of. It gives me a little bit of a safety net. It took a tremendous release of pressure. I was feeling so psychically burdened about my fertility. And, you know, I feel like I could just breathe a little bit. It gave me optimism that I might become a mom. So the timing aspect of it is is really important and it's real in some sense.
1: We're gonna hear about the reasons why women are choosing to freeze their eggs in just a moment. Normally, this is where you hear an ad, and honestly, maybe you'd skip through it. But instead, we've got a story from a nonprofit that supports women's bodily autonomy and mental health. It's one of the organizations that Flamingo donates to as part of their mission to keep your body in mind.
2: I feel like the way that we grew up, we didn't really talk about mental health with we each it. other. Yeah, I don't. we, especially as minorities, we don't really have like support, and mental health is like a taboo topic. So I feel like we didn't really talk about that.
3: Gabrielle and Gabrielle Francis are sisters. While they were both in college, they discovered Black Girl Smile, a nonprofit that empowers the mental health and well-being of Black women and girls.
2: I don't like a lot of people to see like if I'm not okay. Like I have that mask. Everybody was okay to kind of, like, take that mask off. And so just to hear, like, other girls talk about what was going on, and I was like, oh, wow, like, it's okay for me to open up about how I feel.
3: My name is Maggie Yero and I lead social impact at Flamingo. We set aside 1% of our sales for organizations like Black Girl Smile. Gabrielle and Gabrielle both
2: got involved with the program during the pandemic. At first, the events would be on Zoom because, you know, COVID. And so it would always start with a icebreaker. and. They would ask questions about, like, how you felt or, like, your experiences and things like that. I think the first session, I was mute. Like, I didn't say anything. My camera was off. But, like, watching the warmth of the facilitator and, like, how open and honest she was, I think that's what made me want to stay.
3: Black Girls Smiles programs and workshops cover everything from suicide prevention and coaching to financial support for therapy. Gabrielle remembers learning tapping, a stress reduction technique. You
2: literally just use, like, one finger, and you tap certain parts of your body. So a lot of the times we store traumas in certain parts of our body. And so it brought awareness and allowed us to kind of, like, release.
3: Meanwhile, Gabrielle connected with
2: other young women, pursuing a career in social work. Black social workers would gather together. It was very supportive, and just being around people who were like me, and, like, they understand the background culturally and how, like, it affects you now. And whether that be, like, if you're first-generation or you're, like, biracial, like, Black American or— Caribbean. Yeah. I feel like they had a huge variety of different types of people. They've even seen the payoff for their 11-year-old sister, Kelsey. So she's actually too young to be in Black Girl Small because they start at 13. But overall, we've just been able to kind of teach her different things that we've learned. Even if, like, we're on a session or something and she was with me, she used to sit on it with me. So I feel like even if she's not there, she's kind of there.
3: And Gabrielle has taken what she's learned at Black Girl Smile to her
2: work at a youth detention center. One time I asked one of the boys, I was like, do you think that you're a bad kid? And he said, yes. I said, no, I don't think you're a bad kid. I think you're just a kid who makes bad decisions. I kind of go around with that motto whenever I encounter the youth that we have, um, especially the females. Every time I see them, I'll be like, oh, like, your hair looks nice. You look nice. Just like kind of like giving them compliments so that they know that even if they're in this situation, they're still supported and they, they're still like kids. To
3: learn more, you can visit
2: blackgirlsmile.org.
1: So Marsha, before fertility and egg freezing technology had become available, you were already studying other forms of reproduction. Could you say more about that?
0: Yeah, so I had done literally three decades of research in the Middle East and in Arab America looking at infertility, IVF, and then emerging technologies because a number of variants of IVF have sort of come down the pike. And so I have been studying this phenomenon for really a very long time in the Middle East and in Arab America. But at Yale in the year 2012, when the new technology egg freezing was coming about, my very good colleague at the time who was directing the Yale Fertility Center said, you know, there's this new technology and we should figure out who who's going to use it who are the kinds of people who are going to turn to egg freezing it was his suggestion you know so he launched this big study interviewed 150 women i would say 36 of them were women who were medically egg freezing but the majority volunteered because they were doing it for elective reasons they were healthy women and it was simply because the technology emerged and the problem that i discovered the reason why these educated American professional women of all backgrounds were freezing their eggs is because they were straight, they were heterosexual, but they were single, single, single. I mean, women said, why am I freezing my eggs? I'm single, single, single. And this is not something I necessarily expected. Actually, when I wrote the grant proposal for this study, The main theory or sort of assumption about why women would be freezing their eggs is about educational and career planning. You know, this is about women in their maybe 20s who are going to take charge of their careers or climb the corporate ladder, and they're going to be using egg freezing as sort of this tool to promote their professional lives. And that is still actually an image out there very much in the world, that this is all about selfish career climbing women. And that is so not what I discovered. I mean, the main finding of my study is something I'm calling the mating gap, the lack of eligible, educated, equal male partners who are enthusiastic to be partnered and become parents with these women. I mean, women who freeze their eggs, are successful, professional, educated women who want to be moms. They want a partner. They want to be pregnant with their own eggs and they want to be parents. Always hoping to be a mom. I never assumed I wouldn't be a mom. And the issue is just finding a partner, a man who wanted to be part of this journey. And, you know, I I wasn't expecting that because that wasn't what was sort of suggested out there in the literature or in the media. I would like to zoom out just a bit as well. And I wonder
1: if we could talk on a more macro level about what the promises are that are being sold to people who take up this option and how likely is it that some of these promises will come to fruition for them?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest false promise that is out there in the media and it's, you know, through advertisement by some of the more, how should we say, profit oriented sorts of IVF centers. it is not. A promise that you're going to get what's often called a take-home baby from egg freezing. There's no guarantee. And the term insurance policy has often been used to describe egg freezing, and that is the wrong terminology. It is not an insurance policy. You could freeze 20 eggs, which is sort of what people hope to get at least 20 eggs. And when they're rewarmed and embryos are tried to be created, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to get viable embryos or that they're going to end up in a pregnancy. So it's not a guarantee. So that's one thing that really needs to be made clear. And it's difficult to do you have to learn how to self-inject these hormonal medications, which for a lot of women is daunting. Many people have a fear of needles, and so you really have to overcome that. You have to do that on a daily basis, including one toward the end called the trigger shot, which is a very large needle, and you have to get it into your gluteal muscle in your buttock, and it's hard to do on your own. And then sometimes there are real disappointments, just in the number of eggs. You know, The hope that you're going to end up with a good number of eggs from one cycle often doesn't happen for women. So especially women in the latter part of their 30s, they have to take another cycle or another cycle just to try to build up a good store of eggs. I know that your research focuses
1: on a lot of the world and that you've done extensive research in the Middle East. How do conversations around fertility, infertility, and egg freezing vary across cultures?
0: Yes, so Honestly, most of my career, I'm an anthropologist and I'm a specialist in the Middle East. I've worked in a number of different Middle Eastern countries. And I really started there focusing on the sort of social suffering of women facing infertility in a part of the world where 90% of people will marry. And it is a very pronatalist part of the world where people really want to have children. It's just expected. It's almost like mandatory to become a mother and a father. So that's a lot of pressure and it has its own issues when you're in a place where you're really expected to be fertile. And if you can't, it's very difficult. Having said that, people in the Middle East really want to have children, including men. Men really want to become fathers. Most men want to be married. And if they're not married, it's often because of economic and you know political economic conditions. But men value marriage and family life and, and really want to be dads, to children. And it's just a very different cultural vibe. I am a person who is in network
1: with many people who are on their childbearing, caregiving journeys. And I wonder if we could talk a bit about how people in the universe of those people might best support them. What are some of the solutions that you have found or that you might have heard or or things that worked well for people as they were considering egg freezing or also in the process of doing this work?
0: Yeah, so first of all, I have to say I found that egg freezing involved this network of support, just doing the egg freezing itself. And there were these wonderful sort of friend groups where often like one woman decided to do it. And then she became like, I called her the egg freezing bellwether for the rest of her group. And so you got these little communities of women friends who were sort of doing it, one started it, and then they kind of did it, sometimes did it together and decided, look at if we don't find partners, we're just going to support each other. And so I had some very good examples of women who were basically living close to each other in proximity and being the support group. And a couple of those women, actually three women in one group all had children, you know, without a partner, but we're helping each other. And so I think, you know, People can help women on that journey, especially if they need some support. Women in friend groups, sisters often were a huge factor for women who had sisters. They were often very lucky and feeling close to their sisters and talking about sharing eggs with each other. So yeah, there was a lot of different kinds of support from different kinds of people. I spend so
1: much time having fertility conversations, childbearing conversations. I am brave to say I'm 33 years old, and it is the constant hum of my life. What kinds of conversations should we be having in relationship to these options made available?
0: What I learned is that women in this country are routinely put on hormonal contraceptives, often in their adolescence for reasons that don't have to do with pregnancy prevention, but menstrual regulation or dermatological issues, you know, preventing acne and so on. And women often just stay on contraceptives and they go to their well women visits, you know, on an annual basis and they have pap smears and they do what they're supposed to do, staying on those contraceptives and never having a conversation, with a physician, a gynecologist about fertility when it starts to decline, whether fertility is something that they're considering, women said, gosh, I've really been, you know, very routine. I, I've tried to be good. I go annually. I try to be a a very good gynecological patient. And now I'm 33 years old. I never had a single conversation with a, a doctor about whether I wanted to have children, whether I should go off contraception. So there was this feeling that clinicians weren't having these conversations with women. And there was also this feeling that women had that they'd had a lot of sex education since actually sometimes elementary schools, often about pregnancy prevention and STIs. But the fertility conversations about like, when does fertility start to decline? Women had never had those conversations, including women who had gone to women's colleges. They said, you know, we talked about everything. We were like so open and nothing was, you know, we talked about everything, but we never talked about fertility. Like, should we think about our fertility? So I called this fertility benightedness, people just in the dark about their fertility. And, you know, very educated women who felt that they just didn't have enough information. And I think a lot of American women really don't know when fertility starts to decline, which is around age 32. But there's something called the fertility cliff, a real decline in fertility at around age 37. And so most women don't know that. It is
1: funny. I am a proud smithy and can also confirm that I learned how to build my own credit. (laughs) I learned how to do all of these other tools of empowerment. But I cannot think of a single time where I talked about fertility, fertility windows. There've been so many cautionary tales about what it means to take these next steps in your life or even the overall divestment from men, but, uh, the, the conversation about fertility and, 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 these, and the like, not so much.
0: People should have the right not to have children. People should have the right not to partner. You know, there are people who are just single at heart. You know, I have a, a niece who's that way and people have the right to make these decisions and choices about parenting, as you're saying. But when you know that you want to do that, you know, that you want to be a parent, you'd do you need to know about your own biology and you need to know about your fertility. And fertility testing is not routine. It's not routinely done in the sort of well-woman gynecological visit. So it's just something that we need to be thinking a lot more about. And we need to have ways to convey that information in ways that don't scare women, but inform them. Better education on fertility is
1: needed. I think that that's the perfect place to wrap this. I appreciate the generosity of this information and the accessibility of how you described
0: it. Oh, well, great, thank you. It's been my pleasure and lovely to meet you this way. The looming pressure of a
1: biological clock is just a fact of the body. We can't escape it. In a perfect world, technologies like egg freezing could help everyone achieve a certain reproductive freedom from that clock. But even that is no guarantee, and it's a big risk both to the body and the wallet. What we can do is make conversations about fertility an ongoing practice with our physicians. And while we're at it, we can push for a culture where definitions of family and family planning are redefined, where the decision to become a parent doesn't rest on the availability of a partner. Then maybe we'd have a generation of parents that are a bit, well, unruly. I'm Kimberly Drew. For more information about today's guests, a transcript of the episode, and more resources, visit shopflamingo.com unrulypodcast. Unruly is a podcast created by Anna Wesch and produced by Pineapple Street Studios in collaboration with Flamingo. Our associate producer is Maria-Alexa Cavanaugh. Our lead producer is Natalie Brennan. Our mid-episode profiles are produced by Sophie Bridges. Our managing producer is Camila Kashani. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Our senior audio engineers are Pedro Alvira and Marina Paez. This episode was mixed by Davey Sumner. Our assistant audio engineers are Jade Brooks and Sharon Bardalis, who also gave scoring assistance. Our executive producers are J.N. Barry and Augie Ashagre. Our music is from Epidemic Sound. I'm your host, Kimberly Drew. More next week.